You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for joining us here for AOA. Hopefully you all had a good weekend. We've got some hardware coming back to the Midwest after last night's Super Bowl game. Kansas City Chiefs took the win. We're going to turn the focus back to agriculture on today's show. We're going to get an update on the weather with Teresa Doikman of DTN Weather here in just a minute. And then in segment two, we're going to talk with our friend Glenn Tonser of Kansas State. We're going to get an update on that meat demand monitor that they track. And then in segment three, Arlen Suderman will be joining us. We're going to look at these commodity markets and how things are shaping up here across the trade. Before Before we dive into all of that, however, let's get a look at the forecast here for the week ahead. Joining us now is Teresa Doikman from DTN Weather. Teresa, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Teresa, over the Midwest here in the past week or 10 days, we've seen quite a little bit of a warm-up. Is there any chance that's going to stay with us here looking out longer term? Yeah, so, um, you know, much of the, you know, eastern half of the country is going to see that warm-up continue here um, through this week Um, but however out in the west we're going to start to see a little bit of a cool down there we've got a trough building out there and that's going to provide um, some below normal temperatures to start working in uh, west of the mississippi here this week oh teresa how far are those cold wet temperatures going to stretch and how cold are we talking back down below zero uh no i don't think below zero um we're not looking at quite of an as an intense uh cool down here um right now we're looking at temperatures you know they could get you know five to 15 degrees below normal um but a bulk you know the bulk of those coolest temperatures will be across the four corners region so we'll only see you know maybe you know 10 degrees below normal they're reaching to the western plains all right well winter time does come with colder weather i think the folks up north know that it's still that time of year but teresa my next question with this cold snap coming back in are we going to see more precipitation any more chance of snow here on the horizon for the northern plains in particular Oh yeah, so you know we've we've got an active pattern here set up for uh, this week across the central and eastern United States. Uh, right now, we're actually watching a system develop across the south central United States today, and that that's basically going to make its way northeast uh, for the first half of this week. And we are looking at some chances for snowfall there across the upper Midwest and the Dakotas here uh, Tuesday into Wednesday. Um, right now, not seeing anything um, too dramatic in terms of snowfall right now, um, but it'll be later this week that we're watching a more potent system move through that could provide some additional snowfall to the central plains up to the upper Midwest. All right, Teresa, before we get to that system that's coming later on in the week, talk to me a little bit about this system that's moving up from the Delta region today. Any chance for uh, some severe weather with that storm system as it moves its way northeast? 
Uh, no, you know, we're not looking at um, a very favorable setup for, you know, widespread severe weather. I wouldn't be surprised if you get a few embedded thunderstorms, but they'll be pretty weak there. All right. Well, that's good news there for those folks who have certainly seen ample moisture here in recent days. But, Teresa, let's focus in on what's coming later this week. And, of course, we're still several days out. But as you mentioned, that active system coming through, where's that going to start? Who's going to see the first uh, impacts of that? Yep. So this is going to be actually a pretty similar setup. It's going to come off uh, the central Great Basin, and it's going to drift into those, um, drift east into the plains here. And it'll mainly start out in the central southern plains again, just like this, you know, first system this week. And and we're going to start to see a more favorable setup here for this system for uh, more widespread, maybe severe thunderstorms there across the southern Mississippi Valley on the southern side of this system. But then, like I said, you know, uh, could see some snowfall there on the northern side. All right. And where do you think that snowfall is going to develop? You mentioned the southern side seeing some chances of rain. As those push north, Teresa, I've got to imagine that could be some some potent snowfall figures. Yeah, yep. So right now, a lot of models are hinting at a band of snowfall developing from southwest Kansas into areas of the Great Lakes. And uh, right now, you know, you know, we're still a few days out here with the system, but we're kind of starting to see a band of two to six inches of snowfall there from southwest Kansas, maybe into southern Wisconsin. Um, but we are starting to see uh, some models starting to hint at a little bit higher amounts, but these will be isolated. Um, could see some isolated amounts up to six to ten inches. Ooh, six to ten inches. That would certainly make folks take notice. Teresa, at this stage of the yep. game, do we know if winds are going to be a threat with this storm? Um, right now, uh, you know, we're, we're going to definitely see winds uh, with this first system go through. Uh, right now, you know, the Southern Plains have wind advisories out for the system coming around on Tuesday. And then as we go through uh, later with this other system, I don't think winds are going to be as much of a concern. Uh, we'll still see some, you know, gusty winds, maybe, um, you know, 30, 40 miles per hour, but not nearly the magnitude as we'll see um, Tuesday. All right, folks, keep those hats on tight throughout this week. Sounds like we could have some wind possibilities. Teresa, over the past couple of weeks, we've been checking in with John Baranek about the progress for that soybean harvest down in Brazil. And he mentioned here over the past few weeks, it's gotten wet down there. Do you have an update for us? How do things look for those Brazilian farmers uh, this week as they try to get those crops out of the field? Yeah, so, you know, areas of northern Argentina, southern Brazil, they're still going to see an active pattern here for the for the first start of the week. Um, we're looking at scattered showers with some fronts moving through, so unfortunately they're not going to really see uh, any breaks in dry for dry conditions here until later this week. All right, and then, of course, we're gearing up for that safrina crop, watching that La Nina develop. Teresa, are we still moving towards a neutral setup? Yep, yep, we're still starting to see those kind of neutral conditions uh, this spring start to develop, and then we're still watching the potential for um, a switch over to El Nino conditions for this summer. And Teresa, would you think that that switch would actually happen this summer? Could we get enough momentum to be in a full-blown lot El Nino by this fall? 
Um, there is that potential. Um, we're starting to see more models start to um, provide more of a consensus that they'll they'll trend towards El Nino. So we'll just have to keep an eye on that. But we are also going to run into this, um, what we call a spring predictability barrier. And we're going to have to keep our eyes on things, see if anything changes down the road. We sure will. That weather is always in flux. Folks, we have been talking with Teresa Dykeman of DTN Weather. Teresa, thank you so much for joining us today. Always appreciate the insight of the DTN Weather team. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And folks, stay with us. When we return, we'll be talking with Glenn Tonser of Kansas State University about the Meet Demand Monitor. Stick with us for more AOA coming up after this. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. In farming, you know being early means you're right on time. That's why the Roundup Ready Extend crop system created the Spray Early Weed Control Guarantee. When you spray before or at planting, you can protect your investment and give your farm an advantage all season long. Find the tools and resources you need to spray early and guarantee your weed control at roundupreadyextend.com slash spray early. Guarantee is subject to program terms and conditions. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. I think farming picked me. <laughs> I didn't pick farming. I'm not afraid to try something new. It's my farm, my family, and our future. My channel Seedsman gets that. I get access to innovative products with personalized advice backed by data to maximize my yield potential. With Channel, I know I'll prosper for years to come. Define your future at channel.com slash future. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. Copyright 2022 Bayer Group. All rights reserved. What a great organization. Helping families in need like ours. It's a godsend. When an unexpected crisis strikes, Farm Rescue is here to help. Assistance is available free of charge to farm families experiencing a major injury, illness, or natural disaster. Our volunteers and equipment are ready to spring into action with planting, haying, and harvest support. If you or someone you know could use a helping hand, visit farmrescue.org today. When it comes to making plans, you are the best. What about those round trips, which are perfect on your way there and perfect on your way back? Or those meetings with friends, surprise parties, camps, birthdays. The same way you plan for the important moments, start planning to protect you and your loved ones from a natural disaster. Sign up for local weather and emergency alerts. Prepare an emergency kit and make a family communications plan. Get started at ready.gov plan. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. Hey, Dad, your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad, your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey, why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. 
Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving. That's aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. Thanks so much for joining us today. We're going to take our focus over to the meat case, both at the grocery store and at the retail service level. We've got Americans out there enjoying protein. But the question is, how much? Well... We can track that. Not me, for example, but Glenn Tonser, Dr. Glenn Tonser of Kansas State University, does keep track of protein demand here with his monthly meat demand monitor. He joins us now for an update. Dr. Tonser, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Mike. Let's talk real quick first about what the meat demand monitor is. Glenn, you tabulate these results monthly, but what is it you're figuring up here? Yeah, this project was launched in February of 2020. Uh, Every month we survey over 2,000 U.S. residents. The project is funded by the Beef and Pork Checkoff and consistent with the name Meat Demand Monitor. Our focus is tracking, you know, domestic meat channel behavior, both prior day consumption, actual demand measures, you know, what's important in those purchasing decisions. And then as you and I talk each month, we incorporate some hot topic or, you know, one-off questions as well. But to put a bow on it, it is a nationally representative survey-based project to help us understand the domestic meat market. And all the information is available on our agmanager.info website. It sure is. And I've got that information for the month of January pulled up here in front of me. It's right there at agmanager.info under the Meat Demand Monitor tab. And Glenn, it looks to me like the willingness to pay for all categories of protein climbed here in the month of January. Can you tell us what does that mean uh, from from your standpoint? What does the climbing willingness to pay translate to from for the consumer? Yeah, to be clear, you're referring to here January of 23 estimates compared to December, right? So we started the year slightly stronger than we ended 2022. And what you're referring to is our estimates on the amount somebody's willing to pay either per pound at the grocery store, the retail market channel take home, or for a dinner meal. So food service, you know, away from home, dinner meal, usually with your family. Uh, All the beef and pork categories and then chicken breasts that we track were uh, up or in the case of pork chops down just a little bit, but basically flat um, compared to December. Plant-based patties, uh, demand both the grocery store and away from home was down. Uh, and shrimp was flat. But if you put a bow on that overall, the livestock-based meat proteins uh, demand up here to be up a little bit in January. And that is great, of course. So, you know, put that in layman's terms, the public is willing to pay for more for those meat protein items in January than they were December. Uh, most of your listeners know uh, you and I talked for at least the last four, maybe even the last six months of 2022 about some you know, domestic demand concerns. We're certainly not out of the woods of that, but January gave us a ray of hope that maybe 2023 is going to come in a little stronger than we thought. It is indeed. It's great to see consumers out there willing to open those checkbooks, buy this high-quality protein at the price that we need there at the meat case. But I'm wondering, Glenn, looking through the different categories of protein, are you seeing consumers switch? Are they downgrading from ribeyes to pork loins or to burgers? Are we seeing any of that in the data? Yeah, we're seeing more of the same there. Um, you know, branded to unbranded, package size, and then you you alluded to cut differences, right? So um, ribeyes, a sirloin, or the like. All the above are occurring. 
but I want to be careful how I say that. Remember how big our population is. So the U.S. is a large, you know, very diverse by all meaning of the term uh, population, some of which are very price sensitive now. Uh, wages have not kept up with the cost of living for a sizable share of our populace, but others that may have changed jobs twice since we lost this project in February of 2020 may be in a much better economic situation. And the reason I'm highlighting that is not everybody that is a heavy meat consumer is equally price sensitive and therefore equally making these changes. So there's a lot of opportunities for the meat industry to cater to those that are not price sensitive, but there's also opportunities for those that are, and we need to offer more value-based offerings as well. So I know that's a lot in response to you, but the size and diversity of our market is something we always get to keep in mind. That's a really good point, Glenn. There's a lot of opportunity out there depending on how we slice this protein for the market. And I wanted to circle back on something you mentioned. This project started in February of 2020. Of course, March of 2020, we saw retail services effectively shut down as COVID took charge. So it's been interesting to see where people are consuming their protein. And Glenn, are you still noticing a transition from home to restaurants as far as consumption patterns go? Most of that took a pause the second half of 22. Uh, I would argue not because of lingering from the pandemic per se, but the ongoing financial tightening of the belt. Um, it remains cheaper to eat a meal at home than it does away from home because you don't put a value in your labor and you know the time of prep and so forth um, for the average person. So if you are financially constrained, which again, I'm arguing quite a few people have been in the last six months at least, uh, we actually saw a pause in that return to restaurant traffic. Um, if inflation continues to moderate here in 2023 and wages resume growth, we may see a further uptick in away from home, but it's really important to not confound those two. So you're alluding to early pandemic adjustments on where we eat food and specifically protein. I think most of that is behind us. I think it's more a relative affordability and our wages keeping up with the cost of living story as we kick off 2023. That certainly makes sense. Glenn, as you take a look at that data for folks who are willing to go out and spend the money for a protein experience at a restaurant, are we noticing any differences in where they're choosing to spend those dollars? Not, not major shifts. I mean, th those that are still out and about are pretty steady. Uh, and I would argue it's because they're less price sensitive. So they're doing it for different reasons. Um, you know, the extreme, the easiest one to talk about is if you're now back to regular business travel, you know, you're, you may be at the extreme having a white tablecloth steak dinner, um, or you may be having breakfast meetings and so forth. But, the, you know, where you're having that meal is dictated more by business, you know, relationships and so forth than exactly the type of protein is the important part to keep in mind there. Um, but that doesn't strike everybody. So that's kind of why I teed it up on the diversity point. Ah, good point. Good point, Glenn. You know, I want to circle to some of those ad hoc questions that you have the chance to ask your survey respondents. And specifically, I'm curious about price expectations. We've seen meat and dairy animal protein products sort of leading inflation as COVID was shutting down. Now it's taking a break. Are consumers noticing that uh, price expectations are coming down? Yes. And this would be one of the you know rays of hope, if you like, is what you're alluding to is I ask people every month what you think meat prices, specifically ribeye steak and ground beef on the beef side, and then pork chop and bacon on the pork side, will be next month. So I'm basically trying to get in their heads what they expect over the next 30 days. And indeed, they expect higher prices. So I'm talking now in January, what do they expect for February? But the rate of increases is actually the smallest we've had since May of 2021. That's consistent with a lot of other inflation you know, measures are moderating. Notice I said moderating, they're not going away, but we're not talking eight, nine percent rates of increase anymore in most categories. Uh, consumers are anticipating that to continue in the meat category. 
Uh, it's quite different than the egg space, which is all over the media, of course. Um, but that is important to keep in mind is we're expecting a little bit higher prices, but not as much. Maybe that leads to some more broader optimism by consumers that their financial situation will improve. And if it does, of course, affordability of all these items improves too. Glenn, taking a look at all of this data, and of course, with the almost three years worth of data that you have under this project, are there any themes or trends that are emerging that you think farmers and those of us in the industry need to be aware of and keep an eye on? Yeah, I mean, in short, the public loves its meat protein. So, you know, vegan vegetarian diets do exist. And again, we're a large country. There's, you know, a non-zero segment of their population. But don't overreact to that. There's a large majority that regularly consume you know, beef, pork, and chicken items every day, usually more than one meal. Um, that's confirmed month after month. And there's a lot of opportunity for a lot of different business models, as I was alluding to the diversity of the public. And the third one, just to kind of call attention to an ad hoc this past month specifically, is differences across generation are pretty stark. And the ad hoc question we included that we broke down by generation this past month, Mike, was how many times you eat per day. So eating occasions, traditional meals and snacks. And millennials, which are those born between 81 and 96, and then Gen Z's, those born after that, eat more often during the day. So they're more likely to have four, maybe even five eating occasions. And I'm highlighting this because there's opportunity for, you know, added convenience, maybe lower portion size at a higher price point and so forth, particularly for younger generations. Some of those kind of nuggets have been borne out over this, you know, albeit brief history of the Indian. That is very, very interesting to see. And once you have the data, of course, then you can market to it. Once we have it, once we're measuring it, then we can change it. Glenn, for listeners who maybe haven't perused the MDM and seen what kind of data and statistics are in there, I know you have a fantastic dashboard now as well. Could you talk through how people can access it and learn all of what's in there? Yeah, so our agmanager.info website is the catch-all website, you know, extension outreach facing for our department. If you go into the meat and livestock section, you will get to all things meat demand of which this project is one of them based here at K-State. You can find these monthly reports. I mean, you and I are doing an audio summary of these like three page reports each month. Uh, the raw data, the actual survey instruments, much deeper dives and longer reports are there. And then to put a plug in for my student, you mentioned the dashboard. So Justin Bean is a current PhD student here that also works with me on this MDM project and other projects. Uh, he's the brains behind that, but you can see uh, differences across states. So like think fourth quarter 2022, you can tell beef consumption varied by state or how pork consumption varied by state and so forth. So you don't have to be a fellow geek like you and I are, Mike, to appreciate and use this information. Pull it up and we put it in you know, words. We also put it in uh, data visual graphics so that anybody has access to it. Absolutely, folks. It's all right there. Agmanager.info. Check out the Meet Demand tab. We've been speaking with Dr. Glenn Tonser of Kansas State. Dr. Tonser, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for being on, Mike. Folks, stick around. We'll have more AOA after this. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Are you heading to the National Farm Machinery Show in Louisville? Stop by the Trelleborg booth and see me, Mike Pearson, for some exciting live radio and learn about the new HF1000 steel belted tire and features that minimize soil compaction. You can get a cup of coffee at the Barista Bar and I will be broadcasting AOA live from the Trelleborg booth 5039 from 10 to 11 a.m. on Thursday and Friday. That's at the National Farm Machinery Show, Trelleborg booth 5039 from 10 to 11 a.m. We'll see you in Louisville. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, 
your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Also, take a look at the early week market trade on Monday. We started off relatively mixed uh, with quarter beans trading around unchanged, but the soy complex finding some buying strength around mid-morning, led by soybean meal setting new contract highs in March bean meal once again as we watch March beans reach the highest level seen since June as well, right around that 1550 mark. So watching the soy complex uh, possibly pull cord a little bit higher here as we're still relatively mixed, a couple of cents either side of unchanged. The wheat markets also coming off their lows, even though we have tensions in the Black Sea region, uh, is really coming back onto traders' minds, maybe putting in a little risk premium there. And maybe we saw some early profit taking overnight and as we got trade going this morning, but now starting to rally a little bit. Going to be watching the Black Sea issues closely. Also here this week, going to be watching inflation data, how that influences money flow in the commodity sector amid signs that we're starting to build some of that Ukraine war risk premium again and also some risk premium tied to inflation. Now, as we take a look here at livestock trade, we set some new contract highs in live cattle early on Monday's session. Moderate strength in live and feeder cattle trade early on the day Monday with the hog market up moderately as well. Front month February, though, hanging right around unchanged a couple of uh, dollars higher than the cash index as the Feb contract goes off the board Tuesday. That April contract set to take over, holding about a $10 or so premium to the cash index. So it'll be interesting to see how that uh, all works together. Will the April contract come down to cash or will cash start to rebound and come higher? That'll be something to watch closely. Crude oil quiet down about 25 cents a barrel, right around 79.50. This is AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block, Maintained your health? 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. And in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. 
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. We appreciate you making us a part of your day there on the operation. We're going to turn our focus next to the markets. We've got a busy week ahead, lots of folks traveling, maybe headed down to Louisville for the National Farm Machinery Show. How do things look? Well, joining us to break down the markets is Arlen Suderman, a man who is probably in a pretty good mood this morning. Arlen, how are you doing today? Sun shining a little bit brighter today in Kansas City, so doing pretty well, thank you. Well, that is good to hear, Arlen. Always nice to celebrate a win for the home team here. We've also got some uh, good news in the soybean market, it would appear. Prices moving to the upside. Arlen, anything develop over the weekend in the soybean market you're keeping an eye on? Well, it's a combination of momentum and fundamentals, and I'd put a little bit more emphasis on the momentum at this point. But, uh I personally think that we're probably going higher than what the fundamentals justify, but I've learned one thing. You don't argue with the money flow, and that money flow is to the upside right now. As we look at the fundamentals, Argentina did turn a little bit drier over the weekend. Uh, They were very hot over the weekend, um, but the forecast turned drier going forward. It's going to cool down quite a bit this week now that we've gone through the weekend. That will reduce the stress somewhat. The heat does come back probably in the 11 to 15 day period. There will be periods of showers, but overall it's going to lean to the dry side. We're probably going to expand the area under stress to about two-thirds of the belt there once again in Argentina. So that's going to continue to probably shrink the crop size for both corn and soybeans going forward. The corn, the drop in corn definitely should help U.S. corn exports later this year uh, as Argentina has less competition with us, particularly with Ukraine increasingly out of the picture. The soybeans, I think Brazil has a big enough crop. If you look at the possibility of uh, imports out of Paraguay and Brazil, they can make up most of that deficit in soybean production, even though we're looking at probably a significant shortfall there. Brazil's crop is so massive um, that it can do that, but the market is focused on it. That's where the money flow is going, and If you consider also there's a little bit of a factor of money coming into these grain and oil seeds now as talk of inflation comes back and talk of uh, intensifying war in Ukraine comes back, you wouldn't know that from what the wheat market's doing today. But overall, there's a sense that maybe they want to own a little bit more of the grain and oil seed sector now. That's adding to it as well. My concern is that the soy meal market we don't know for sure because we haven't had a CFTC commitment of traders report now for two or three weeks because of the computer hacking issue uh, with the company that collects that data. Um, but uh, overall, we think that the funds have near record ownership of soy meal right now. And at some point, I fear that's going to tip over and that could pull the soybean market down with it when and if that happens. Arlen, we've been talking about these stressed areas and production cuts in Argentina for quite some time. And I'm wondering from a timing perspective, when will the market stick a crop in Argentina's or stick a stick a fork in Argentina's crop? When is it going to be done for them down there in in that country? 
Well, they'll probably start having a real sense of it in March. Now, the problem with Argentina is they have a very long planting season. They'll start planting in October, and they'll wrap up. Well, they wrapped up planting here over the last 10 days to two weeks, so a very long planting period. So it takes a long time to get into the late crops. The early crop harvest will start here pretty soon here in the next few weeks um, and then it'll stretch on into the spring our spring time their fall time so it'll stretch over time but as we get into the month of March we generally start having a pretty good feel on the size of the crop right now USDA is out of 41 million metric tons of soybeans some of the private estimates are as low as 34 and a half and and that's very possible. We may go lower than that. There's some similarities to the 0809 crop that came in at 32 million metric tons. I just think it's a little bit early when you consider that half the crop is still in a position to significantly benefit if those rains come as La Nina starts to die. Actually, La Nina is well into its death uh, pattern right now. And if those rains come back, they could still benefit. So I'm right now thinking we're probably somewhere in the 39 to 40 million metric ton area, not ready to go to those lower numbers yet. All right, Arlen. Well, the commodity markets are also turning their focus to what's about to go in the ground here across Brazil, that large second crop safrina corn. Hearing about recent rains uh, hampering soybean harvest for Brazilian growers, but I've got to imagine that's going to help encourage more of those corn acres to get in the ground. Does Stonex have a sense yet for uh, safrina crop acreage? Yeah, we anticipate it's going to be up about 4.5% or so once again this year. Um, and again, that's the corn crop that's planted right behind the combine so of, that are harvesting soybeans. <clears throat> the area of greatest concern is Mato Grosso. As we look at Mato Grosso, it is responsible for really 25% of Brazil's soybean production, but it is responsible for 43% of Brazil's safrina corn production. And so that is also the area where the rainy season ends first. So the key is to get the crop planted in time so that they can meet, make pollination and early grain fill before the rainy season ends sometime in the last half of April. And so generally you say that crop needs to be planted in Mato Grosso by, some will say February 25th, I'm going to say March 1st, um, and then that date kind of moves later as you move south into other parts of Brazil. As of Friday, the latest data that we received suggested that 45% of Mato Grosso soybeans had been harvested and 42% of its safrina corn had been planted. So from that standpoint, the forecast is for them to see below normal rainfall there over the next week to 10 days. They should continue to make substantial progress, and I think they're going to get the beans harvested sufficiently to get the corn planted in Mato Grosso, and then we have more time for the other areas to get it. Access of rains have been a particular problem in Goyas and Minas Garis, which is to the south and east kind of of uh, overall for Brazil. 
And as we look at those regions, they're responsible for about 15% of the soybean production and about 18% of the uh, safrina corn production, so a little less significant. It's been excessively wet there. There are some pictures on social media of rotting soybeans, but uh, our people in Brazil continue to tell me that's being overblown yet at this point. It is a danger. It is a risk, but the, the damage is still being overblown yet at this point. All right, Arlen, coming back to those things that are maybe putting a little bit of premium back into the commodity markets, we've got the Russian counteroffensive or offensive in Ukraine, that back and forth, lighting things up again on the global stage. We've also got the U.S. military taking out a lot of these unidentified flying objects. Arlen, what's happening from a geopolitical standpoint? Are there risks out there that farmers should be tuned into? Uh, there are. First, uh, the China, we've now shot down four objects in the skies that we saw as a threat to the United States. The first was the Chinese balloon, um, which was clearly from China with listening devices. The other three over the weekend, we do not have an identity. The assumption is that they are China. We do not know for that for certain, but it is resulting in increased tensions with China. Tensions with China are very high right now. We have not seen a direct impact on reduction in purchases of commodities from the United States, although it adds to the overall sense that China wants to wean itself off of dependency from us, and I think that's going to continue. On the other side, the Ukraine war uh, is intensifying. Um, the missiles going into Ukraine are certainly continue to be intense. There's a, the ground fighting, they say, is maybe as, in, as intense as it has been over the last year. There is a sense that Russia is building up for a spring offensive, which some think may start on the anniversary of the war on February 24th. Um, the bottom line is the risks related to that war are increasing, not going away meaning that we could see more disruptions to commodities, not just coming from Ukraine, but as sanctions are increased, maybe from coming from Russia as well. And we've removed most of the war premium that was in the markets. And so there's some sense that maybe we need to put some of that war premium back into these markets, although you wouldn't tell it from today's wheat market. That was certainly a topic of conversation on Friday. Well, and I was going to ask you about wheat, Arlen, while we're talking about those missiles flying into Ukraine. I mean, we're, we're not doing a lot of things over there. They're going to increase the production of wheat in the Black Sea region. Why are we selling off today? Yeah, and part of it is just the ebb and flow of the market as well. Um, so you don't the market doesn't go straight up or straight down typically. You get this back and forth, but the tr overall trend will be there in place. I do think the risks are continuing to go up. World supplies of quality milling wheat are tight as a percent of annual usage. They're basically the tightest that we've seen in uh, recent history. Um, so there's very little margin for error whatsoever. And so if we'd see anything start to shut down exports coming from Russia or reduce them further, that would tighten things up even more. And I think the market needs to be concerned about that possibility. They certainly would. It pays to keep your head on a swivel when things are moving as quickly as they are in the world today. We've been speaking with Arlen Suterbin, Chief Commodities Economist at Stonex. Arlen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Mike. And folks, stay with us. We'll have more AOA here when we return in just a minute. 
Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and the feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve together, we can make a difference, bite by bite. As a farmer, I want a cooperative that's there for me. Not the other way around. A local co-op that works for me and works with CHS. To connect me with local experts I know and trust. And put a global network of markets and supply at my fingertips. A co-op that's here to help us. Own every day. When you're an owner of a local cooperative connected to CHS, you get local expertise, a proven efficient supply chain, and global market access. Learn more at cooperativeownership.com. Pride. It runs deep for those in agriculture. But that pride can also prevent farmers from asking for help when it's needed most. An injury, illness, or natural disaster is a heavy burden for any operation to bear. Farm Rescue is here to help shoulder that burden. We are a nonprofit organization helping farm families in crisis with free planting, haying, and harvesting assistance. There is no pride lost when it comes to Farm Rescue. Learn more at farmrescue.org. The archaeological record suggests that wheat was first cultivated in the regions of the Fertile Crescent, also known as the Cradle of Civilization, around 9600 B.C. The Roman goddess Ceres, who was deemed protector of the grain, gave grains their common name today, cereal. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three-quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. The first bagel rolled into the world in 1683 when a baker from Vienna, Austria, was thankful to the king of Poland for saving Austria from 
Turkish invaders, the baker reshaped the local bread so that it resembled the king's stirrup. The new bread was called bugel, derived from the German word for stirrup. Ancient traditional tortillas were made from ground corn by Mexican natives as long as 2,000 years ago. However, flour tortillas only started to become popular in the 19th century. More types of foods are made with wheat than with any other cereal grain. These farm facts brought to you by the American Egg Network. In honor of all those we've lost to cancer and those still fighting and thriving, like basketball analyst and cancer champion Dick Vitale. I want to beat cancer. I'm going to beat it. That's no doubt in my mind. I'm going to win this battle. Defeating cancer will take all of us. Join our team to help fund game-changing research that saves lives. At the V Foundation, V is for victory over cancer. V is for victory over the odds. V is for victory over health disparities, victory over setbacks, victory over the unknown. V is for victory over giving up. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. Join the V Foundation team and help save lives. Cancer can take away all my physical abilities. It cannot touch my mind, it cannot touch my heart, and it cannot touch my soul. Join our team in the fight against cancer at V.org. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. We've got a survey here that I wanted to highlight. It dovetails nicely with what Dr. Glenn Tonser was talking about there with the meat demand monitor. The fact that consumers are still willing to pay a premium for quality protein. This other most recent survey is the Consumer Food Insight Report. It's released by Purdue University's Center for Food Demand Analysis and Sustainability. It was released late last week, and what this report found was that despite the cost of Food, predominantly meat and dairy products climbing 19% over the past year, consumers don't express any desire to cut back on their meat consumption any further. Data that certainly seems as though it's borne out in practice with Dr. Tonser's meat demand monitor. So it's always good to hear that happening with folks around the country. We've also got some news on the international front. Just before the new year, several key appointments were confirmed in Washington, D.C., notably for agriculture, the U.S. Trade Representative's chief ag negotiator. Doug McCaleb had been nominated to that role. He's got a long history with the USDA, a long history working in international agriculture was uh, confirmed to that role finally just before New Year's. And here this last week, last Thursday, he gave his first sit-down interview with the press and highlighted a lot of what he's looking to see out of the USTR's office as 2023 comes into focus. And I don't think a lot of it is shocking to most of us in agriculture. He mentioned one of his key focuses in this new role is ensuring China sticks with their commitments they made during the 2020 Phase 1 deal. He said we're not going to be pushing for China to make any new commitments, just helping them hold their feet to the fire on sticking with their existing commitments. He said that uh, China purchases have hit nearly 40 
$1.1 billion, nearly a fifth of U.S. global farm exports headed to China in this last year. They want to help maintain that business with China, but they also want to find new, par- new markets and new products to go in those new markets. McCaleb quotes mentioned that I'm interested in specialty crops, organics, biofuels, all kinds of emerging areas of U.S. agriculture that I think are exciting and that I think consumers out there want. We just need to make sure we're in a position where other governments don't have barriers to such projects. He highlighted Southeast Asia as a place where the excitement for the ag industry and the demand from those growing consumers are strong. But he also spent a little time highlighting some of the areas where governments are confounding the ability of American farmers to get their products into those markets. Notably, one place he brought up, we've discussed it on this program, it's Canada. Canadian dairy imports. The Canadian dairy industry, of course, is very, very closed. They operate on a quota system. Canadian dairy producers are allowed to produce milk up to their quota. And because of that, they really don't like to see foreign milk, foreign dairy products coming onto their shores. It can disrupt their quota system. So the Canadian dairy industry, even though they signed on to a lot of commitments under the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Act, they have not been honoring them, uh, at least according to the U.S. dairy industry. Uh, We've talked with our friends at the International Dairy Food Association about the work they're doing to try and encourage more dairy trade with Canada, and Doug McCaleb said USTR is joining that fight as well. As of right now, the U.S. trade representative has resolved to start a second dairy trade challenge under USMCA with Canada. Uh, We spoke about that here on the program a week ago. It's going to be a slow grind. This is going to take several months in order to get off the ground. This is the second time we've gone back and forth. The United States has gone back and forth with Canada on these dairy issues. And McCaleb said this is something he is taking very seriously, and they're going to fight this all the way through to the end. So that's issue one. Issue two, that uh, we're seeing foreign governments impede the American farmer's ability to move products is down south of the border in Mexico. The issue there, of course, is GMO yellow corn. Mexican President uh, AMLO has said that uh, the import of GMO corn from the United States will cease on January 1st, 2024. That was the decree made two and a half years ago. Now that we're getting close to this timeline, many proponents uh, or many folks inside the Mexican ag industry are pushing back on that. They don't think they're going to be able to have a hard and fast ban in place by January 1st, 2024. But we are seeing the USTR continue to put pressure on Mexico. Uh, Michaela mentioned in that interview that on January 30th, the USDA sent a letter to Mexico demanding that they outline the scientific justification for their ban of GMO corn. He noted that earlier... The U.S. requested 14 different explanations for traits that the Mexican government has said they will not allow into the country. And to date, the Mexican government has not responded to any of them. McCaleb did not go on to specify how remedy could be pursued longer term. It is expected, similar to like what we're seeing with the Canadian dairy industry, we could move forward under U.S. Trade Representative, or excuse me, under the U.S. MCA Act to try and get redress. It's a story that will continue to develop all year long. We'll stay plugged in with our friends in the corn industry and the policy world to see how this continues to mature. Another story doesn't sound as though it should impact the ag industry, but believe it or not, it certainly is. If you've been plugged into the major news sources here over the past several months, no doubt you've heard about a lot of layoffs happening at tech countries, uh, tech companies rather, over in Silicon Valley. 
Massive amounts of layoffs at some of the larger tech companies here over the past several weeks certainly has folks downbeat on the future of the tech sector. But there is one segment of the tech sector that is scooping up these uh, these engineers and these IT folks with seemingly no stopping, and that's agriculture. We've got ag industries, ag companies looking to hire these laid-off tech folks, and they're moving them here to the Midwest. John Deere has been a noted hirer as these major layoffs have happened in Silicon Valley. We've also seen similar hiring take place at ag IT companies up and down the value chain. So folks, if you live in the Midwest, if you've got a major ag company, there's a possibility you could be seeing some Silicon Valley engineers moving into town near you to help make U.S. agriculture even more efficient. Just before we go last week, I mentioned that we were seeing President Joe Biden and Lula President of Brazil, get together this past week. They did meet. No major changes were announced. The U.S. doesn't appear to be joining the Amazon Fund anytime soon, but we'll continue to track these geopolitical changes and how they could evolve and impact agriculture long term. Thanks for tuning in to AOA, folks. We'll be back tomorrow. We'll see you then. More news for our industry. Take care, everybody. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Each season, farmers put it all on the line. So it's just good business to get every advantage you can. That's why the Roundup Ready Extend crop system created the Spray Early Weed Control Guarantee. When you spray before or at planting, you can give yourself a season-long advantage over weeds, and it can help boost your yield potential. Show weeds you mean business and learn more about guaranteed weed control at roundupreadyextend.com slash sprayearly. Guarantee is subject to program terms and conditions. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. I think farming picked me. <laughs> I didn't pick farming. I'm not afraid to try something new. It's my farm, my family, and our future. My channel Seedsman gets that. I get access to innovative products with personalized advice backed by data to maximize my yield potential. With Channel, I know I'll prosper for years to come. Define your future at channel.com slash future. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. Copyright 2022 Bayer Group. All rights reserved. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council.